for it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Welcome back to Short Hops and Tall Tales, a pitcher list podcast highlighting the weird, funny, and bizarre elements of baseball that really make America's pastime special. I'm once again Noah Scott, and I'm joined by my co-host Brandon Riddle, and we are super excited to bring you another episode just really packed with bizarre baseball and, uh, you know, weird stuff that that we like here on this podcast. Uh, Now, joining us today is our very special guest, uh, Sarah Griffin. So Sarah is an Across the Seams writer here at PitcherList, where she's written pieces about the Red Sox, about John Means, and most recently, a great article about the Brewers starters Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns. Now, you can find Sarah on Twitter at SKG18. Now, Sarah, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be on here. Uh, So for anyone listening, what, what exactly is Across the Seams? What does that mean? So it's kind of just, honestly, it's the aspect of pitcher list where like, if it doesn't fit in a specific category that's already there, like, you know, like pitching mechanics, um, specific fantasy stuff, it's just anything related to baseball, really, you can just get right into, (laughs) make it as familiar. I do a lot of pieces like on the Red Sox Brewers, those are the teams I follow, but some of them are so creative, it just kind of blows my mind. Right, so Red Sox and Brewers, those are kind of two teams, different <laughs> leagues, different geographies. How, how did you get about following those teams? Okay, so I'm from Boston, so I've always been a Red mm-hmm. Sox fan. And then the Brewers, I actually just started getting into in 2018 because I was a really big Christian Yelich fan. Oh, and I tried oh. calling him when he was tomorrow. I know, I know. How you doing? Yeah, how you doing right now? <laughs> Not so hot. <laughs> <laughs> It has been a great time to be a Christian Yelich fan in like a solid <laughs> year and a half. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, the Marlins weren't the most exciting to watch, even when he was there and it was like a superstar team. <laughs> so then once he went to the Brewers, I'm like, all right, here's a new team for me to follow. They have no relevancy to the Red Sox. Although I kind of thought <laughs> 2018, like, oh man, these teams could face each other in the World <laughs> Series, actually. <laughs> but since then, I just yeah, kind of I- followed them as my NL team. I think the closest link I can make to those two teams off the top of my head uh, would be CC Sabathia when he went to the Yankees because he had that fantastic run with the Brewers in the second half. Uh, he 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 was like it was like what four complete games and yep. multiple games on like three days rest, and he blew the league apart. And then after that, he went to the Yankees. So yeah, that, that's the closest I got. The only other there's like random obscure players. Uh, the closest one I can think of now that's like relevant still is Travis Shaw, who still isn't all of <laughs> <laughs> Like that gives nice. me an idea of how relevant the two are with each other. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're going to actually get into kind of just kind of talking about your favorite players in a second here. But um, just a quick rundown of the other things that we've we've got on deck for tonight. So after we touch base with Sarah, we're going to talk about the bizarre story of MC Hammer uh, before he was MC Hammer when he was a bat boy for the Oakland Athletics. <laughs> then we're going to go back into our uh, segment, the pickle jar with a term. Uh, I'm not remembering off the top of my head. Wow, that's really we're just bad. we're just going to throw it all at you. Right pickle jar. We're going to throw everything at you for the pickle jar. Okay, all right. <laughs> then Brandon is going to tell us the story of and I'm honestly not sure how to pronounce this reading off of the uh I don't know either. Randy, do you want to take it away? What, what, what are we talking about here? I will. Uh, we're going to talk about Josephus the Phenomenal. 
Okay. Uh, so it's it's one of those words that you read and you never say out loud, so you don't know how you don't know really how to pronounce it. Like Hermione from Harry Potter when you first read it, <laughs> Josephus, the phenomenal, is what I'm going with. Okay. Well, I honestly, uh, it's, I I have no idea what the story is going to be about, so I will be equally equally enraptured <laughs> in a second here by whatever Brandon has in store for us. And then if we have time, uh, we're going to talk about baseball villains in our closeout discussion. So without further ado, I know we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, some play, you know, Yelich a little bit. Uh, Who are some of the other players that really inspired your love of baseball growing up? So obviously being a Red Sox fan, all of them are mainly Red Sox players. Big one for (laughs) me that's been kind of upsetting lately is Dustin Pedroia because that was the first player yeah. that I bought like a jersey for like if I saw him on the street I would like freak out about him mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I don't know when you're like little and like he was like he's not a big guy he's like five foot eight like whatever and like <laughs> especially next to like David Ortiz I was like oh he's just like me <laughs> but he was just, like, I, kind I, of, like, I could play this game firecracker like I loved him <laughs> yeah no I feel like Dustin Pedroia comes up what every three episodes because we, we talk about the yeah, like, second base so often like, really quite a bit yeah so <laughs> so were you also were you also like a big like manny ramirez uh person too or was it was it more I was a big manny fan, like especially growing up because that was one of the guys like when i was like seven eight i'm like another one i always recognize and actually we share a birthday so i felt a very big connection oh, really <laughs> nice. So, so you you were a, f- a fan in like, 2004 and five when, when they were first really getting to the World Series. So, do you remember like having those feelings of watching them win for the first time, especially in your lifetime, but also in your parents' lifetime? And do you remember that feeling when it was like? That's the thing with 2004. I always feel like I'm like God. I wish I was a little older when that happened. Yeah. So I was seven. <laughs> And I remember my parents like freaking out, like it's being this like yeah. crazy big thing. My parents are actually season ticket holders for a really long time, like when the Red Sox were oh, really wow. bad, and they stopped in two thousand four. So to them, it was like this huge deal. But to me, like I was only seven, I was like, oh well, they're having a good season, cool. so whatever. Yeah, kind of spoiled with what like three was it three? Oh my World goodness, Series yeah, for Boston in, in your life at least. Let's see, 2004, 7, 13, 18, so four. Four, yeah, as, especially for a Red Sox fan, but literally any fan. If you can have four championships in a lifetime, that is a good life, honestly. Yeah. That's what my parents talk about, like, the Red Sox, you know, they used to be really, really bad. I'm like, I don't remember them ever being bad. Right. Um, now, a little bit of a pivot here. So one of the first pieces that you wrote for Pitcher List was about Orioles pitcher John Means and his really long and inspiring road to the majors. Now, he just threw a no-hitter. So really, what was it like to see him kind of reach that mountaintop last week? It was insane because I feel like last year, I that Pitcher List, my first article I wrote about him, it was before the like shortened season even started. So I kind of hyped John Means up like really big and like a lot of my friends, like not a ton of people are like, oh, John Means, like this Orioles pitcher or whatever. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And like he didn't have a bad season by any means, but it wasn't what I all like hyped it up to be. So then when, again, what was it? Oh, it was on opening day this year. He like was insane against the Red Sox. And everyone was like, oh, maybe you're right. Maybe this guy does have some good stuff. Then he throws a no hitter. I'm like, I told you all. I told you last year, this is someone you want to be watching. Like, he's an ace. Watch this guy. I'm like, perfect. It finally came full circle. Nice. 
Yeah, and he's Beautiful. also just one of those That's players. Feeling. Yeah, he's he's also just one of those players where, you know, his story, like, it's just such a feel-good... Like, you want him to succeed, right? Not that you necessarily... Yeah, can, can, can you talk... I know we want to direct people to your article as well, but can you talk a little bit about his road and how, you know, it's long and inspiring? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so when he... Out of high school, it wasn't even like he got, like, picked up by any, like, D1 schools or whatever. He started off at a D3, then transferred to D1. Um, I don't th- I think he went undrafted for a while, but then even once he did get drafted, there wasn't really any, like, big, like, no scouts were like, oh, watch this guy, watch this guy. So, at one point in the minors, I think it was about two, three years ago now, three years ago now, mm-hmm. he made a LinkedIn page. Just, oh, wow. I don't know how well this whole baseball thing is going to work out. You know, he was actually a substitute teacher to pay rent during the minors. Like, there's just not much promise for him in his eyes at the time of a major league career. And now you just look back because actually his LinkedIn page is still up, I think, or at least it was still up last week. Wow, really? Out of curiosity. Wow. I'm going to friend him. <laughs> I'm like, what? A 360? Yeah, that's a. I mean, especially with the minor leagues, because we, we like to think about baseball players. They can live in penthouses and have these glorious lives. But yeah. in the minor leagues, that's not the life they have. It's tough. They make zero. So, yeah. To, 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 zero. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He was subbing in the high schools, I think, just to make like ends meet. <laughs> that's really. Yeah. So to see him go to the pinnacle with a no hitter, that's that means yeah. something to him. That's a really fantastic. To see. It means something really, really. <laughs> It means uh, something. On purpose. <laughs> yeah, you you, um, you said not to encourage me, so I'm yeah, no, I I secretly love it. We 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 know that. Um, so Sarah, <laughs> I know I know that you also talk a lot about you know you're a big hockey fan, right? Yes. Now, are there any elements of hockey that you think could possibly be interesting to see adapted to a baseball game? I know that Manfred is just you know twisting everything up these days, so you know. Are there any uh, any wild ideas you you think that can make things interesting? Ooh, that's a good question. My first thought was like, well, hockey they allow a lot more fighting than they do in baseball, <laughs> <laughs> which that's could good. make things a little more interesting. But I don't know how well that would pass by with the Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I think going against smacked with a huge fine, regardless. <laughs> uh, it's like MLB Slugfest again. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I do know that that uh, Brandon did did have a he did an article and we talked about it on the podcast about baseball players actually playing a game on ice skates. I think that was like our third episode. Um, maybe that's yeah, like eighteen sixty eight, something like that. Yeah. Or also, like you know, in hockey, if you they go out to a shootout, if there's a tie game, mm-hmm. we should just start doing that in extra innings because we already make extra innings so weird yeah. now, like the twelfth yeah. inning or something. I, 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 I read something. I don't know who it was by, but someone floated the ideas. You know, what if we get to the like 12th inning, like you said, and instead of playing a regular game, we just choose two players and have a home run derby and they exactly. win the game for the two teams. Like I would okay. hate, I would hate the idea, but honestly, that'd be kind of fun to watch. Oh, or, or yeah. hear me out. Hear me out. A bunting contest. <laughs> I'm in. Oh. You, you know, I love my small ball. Get down the third baseline. Mine. A-Rod, yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so it's it's also, uh, Sarah, uh, now that you're on the show, it's a bit of a tradition um, for us to do a trivia question. Now, I honestly forgot to ask you uh, to bring a trivia question, so I made one about 10 minutes ago. Okay. Um, so, 
Uh, this is for you and Brandon. Um, mm. So in 2008, Dustin Pedroia, he won the AL MVP award with an 869 on base plus slugging while leading the league in runs, hits, and doubles. Which of his Red Sox teammates finished in third place for MVP voting that year? Okay, Sarah, you're the massive Red Sox fan. Any first thoughts? Let me think. I'm 2008, 2008 team. I just thought yeah. it was wild that two teammates finished in the in the top three. Top three, yeah. Anything. So 2008. So I'm thinking, of course, you have your David Ortiz. I think Ramirez is still on the team at this point. I would say I'm between like Ortiz, Euclid. Uke? I think he was born in 2008. But because this is a trivia question, it can't be obvious. Like, of course it was Manny Ramirez. Of course it was David Ortiz. It has to be someone more. It has to be like a process. Like a somehow he was so magical in, in the field, like Mark Hotze. I don't know. <laughs> it's got to be someone off it's, that we wouldn't have expected. It's Hotze's baseball card, actually. Oh, I think <laughs> From Clay Buckholz was on that team. I'm sorry. What okay. was that? Is it Euclid? It is Euclid. Look at go. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nice job. That was pretty good because I, yeah, he, solid. Uh, so it was Kevin Euclid who hit 312 that year, hit 29 home runs, and finished with 6.3 wins above replacement. Wow, uh, so- which was second to Dustin Pedroia, who posted seven. That that was pretty good. Um, that that wouldn't I I wouldn't have guessed that. I was, I was just trying to think of when Euclid's prime was. I'm like, I don't know yeah. if he kind of lit off after like 2012. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was a really good guess. All right. Um, so now moving on to our first story of the night. So this is something that I dug up a couple weeks ago. I saw this photograph of this this young kid sitting right next to Hammerin Henry Aaron. And I go in the details a little bit and I read and it's actually MC Hammer, like mm. the rapper, the, you know, before the you can't touch this fame. You know, before right. before he sold millions and millions of records. Um, so this is a really interesting story about how MC Hammer actually grew up as a bat boy in the Oakland Athletics organization and how he actually ended up with his stage name and his rap uh, moniker. So. Oh, my goodness. And this is like prime athletics exactly, time exactly. as well. You're in right. 70s. They're coming off of three World Series titles and MC Hammer is 11 years old and He's doing James Brown's br- words are so hard. All right. And he's doing James Brown splits in the Oakland Coliseum parking lot. So that's where we open. That's he's already 11 years old. Background. Right. Like it's it's it, it, it just gets wilder from here. So before the fame, before everything, he was simply this 11 year old kid. His name was Stanley Burrell. And he was an Oakland Athletics fan. Like Brandon said, this was at the height of the A's dynasty uh, in the 70s. Uh, where they were coming off of three World Series championships. And so what he would do was he would just ho- hang around the Coliseum. He would sell stray baseballs and he would dance, uh, sometimes with a beatboxer, sometimes by himself. And one day when he was 11, the athletics owner at the time, Charlie Finley, discovered him doing James Brown splits and impersonations in the parking lot and loved his energy and flair so much that he actually, he said, hey, kid, you want to work in the clubhouse? Like we, I want you to be a part of the team. Like how wild of an origin story is that? Just, just off the jump. I, uh, for, first, I, I love the idea of the owner of a team going to like the, 
the parking lot of the commoners, commoners now. Like, can you imagine any billionaire owner going through the po- parking lot and seeing someone do a dance? That could only happen now. in the seventies. That's <laughs> right? really cool. Like, I feel like that's that's when people say like you got a network. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what it takes at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I gotta have a LinkedIn page. See, well, I, LinkedIn. yeah, I mean. <laughs> If you're trying to get get hired to a uh, you know front office job, I guess hang out in the parking lot and uh, you know bust some out some moves. Splits. Yeah, so do some splits. So from there, you know, a legend was born, right? So he ended up working uh, for the Athletics from about 1973 to 1980. So that's really some prime years there. Um, and when you think about it, this is when he was yeah. you know a teenager, right? Like this is the kind of the dream job, right? Like I, I know I like remember when I was like twelve or thirteen, I went on Google, I was like, I want to be a bat boy. How do I do this? And so he got to actually work in the clubhouse from when he was eleven <laughs> to about eighteen years old. Now, not just that, too, but he also got to work alongside his brother, Lewis, uh, who was a bat boy for the team. So can you imagine, like, getting off of school and, you know, just taking a trip down to the ballpark and going and hanging out with, you know, Vita Blue, who we actually ended up becoming best friends with? That's Blue, who has a great song, by the way. You can go YouTube by the Blue song. No, that is the absolute dream in the seven any yeah. day, but especially the seventies. Yeah, and can you imagine just what he saw in the seventies MLB clubhouse too? <laughs> oh my god! Uh, <laughs> no, I, I don't know if I want. I don't know if I want to imagine that. So, so Stanley he starts hanging around the clubhouse of the defending champion A's, um, and some players start to notice a resemblance to one of the great hitters of the time, uh, Hammer and Henry Aaron. Now, Reggie Jackson actually claims that he gave uh, Burrell the moniker, you know, the hammer, right? Uh, Brewers second baseman Pedro Garcia also says that he called him Little Hammer. So it become kind of, became kind of this, this clubhouse nickname for him. Um, and I just think it's really cool because he's hanging out around all these championship level ball players, And he was like best friends with, you know, the all-stars of the day, you know, with, you know, slugger Joe Rudy and all these baseball players that, you know, your dad is probably you know, talk to you about at some point, I guess, if you live in Oakland, I don't know. Um, (laughs) But uh, now this is where it gets really interesting. And we started this off with doing splits in a parking lot. So Stanley, actually, unlike his brother, he wasn't a full time bat boy. Uh, But his uh, the owner of the team, Chuck Finley, he'd taken such a shine to him that he was actually something of his eyes and ears in the clubhouse. So. So. So wait, 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 wait a minute. So that means MC Hammer was oh, yeah. the snitch. Oh, we're we're getting there. Is okay. that what you're telling me? I would me? never call him a snitch. <laughs> I I would never level that that accusation. He's in the ears. He's but, either um, a man or a snitch. Yeah. So he so he traveled <laughs> with the team on road trips, right? Uh, when the owner, uh, you know, couldn't couldn't tag along, so he would actually take calls and do play by plays for Chuck Finley uh, during the summer games. Now, around the clubhouse at the same time, uh, he acquired a less known nickname, which was Pipeline, uh, because every time he would come down to the clubhouse, Mm. he said uh, Raleigh Fingers would yell out, oh, you know, everyone be quiet. Here comes Pipeline because he was the pipeline (laughs) for all the dirt. You know, he was like this like 12 year old narc in in this clubhouse of grown adults. You can say it. Um, Yeah. And it it actually got to the point where he would show up to the ballpark at, at this one point. And he actually had a hat that was that said VP on it that just meant executive vice president uh, because Chuck Finley and everyone would joke that he was the one who was actually running the team as this this teenager just hanging out in the clubhouse. 
It's it's so funny to imagine a tiny MC Hammer going yeah. through these motions and being the and eyes and the ears of a Chuck Finley. Because when they're on these road trips, he actually would go out and perform at clubs occasionally. Uh, you know, later on when he got older, and that's where he added the MC, you know, Master of Ceremonies to <laughs> his uh, his rap name, and the, uh, thus a legend was born. Uh, so really, there wasn't a ton that really came out of this outside of, uh, well, I guess I'd say you know, a lot of cool photos came out of this period for MC Hammer and have survived. So there's like photos of him, you know, popping bottles of champagne uh, after the A's won the AL West when he's like, what, like 16 or something, 15. <laughs> well, well, yeah, 16 uh, years he old did it for yeah. a few years. Oh, yeah, he did it for like seven years from like, you know, 11 to like 18, 19 years old. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, like I just can't imagine, you know, wow. getting out of like chemistry class in high school or something and going down to the ballpark and I don't know, doing whatever Cody Bellinger's pregame ritual is, you know, <laughs> hanging out with, you know, like those guys. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that he and he actually did play some baseball too. to his credit. He played second base in high school and growing up, he did want to go pro for a while. Uh, and he got as far as getting cut at a San Francisco Giants tryout. Uh, just out of high school. Um, however, mm. you know, maybe things worked out because he ended up going on to be MC Hammer. Uh, he gave the world's Can't Touch This, which was used in the seminal work Shark Tale uh, featuring Will Smith. Um, <laughs> I was wondering where you're going with that. It, um, it you know, did not yet. Yeah, it of works. records uh, invented hammer pants. I think it all worked out. And he does now, or at least he did uh, get to play in the annual Taco Bell All-Star Legends in Celebrity Softball game uh, representing Oakland. So he did make it onto a major league field eventually. Okay. And, and, and once again, it was the uh, annual Taco Bell All-Star Basically Legends in Celebrity Series. Softball game. I love that. That's, that's monumental. <laughs> The Taco I think, Bell I think my favorite part of every October, <laughs> it's not, you know, the the games themselves, but it's who's going to steal base and win America tacos. Mookie. Always Mookie. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, there's a I Mookie reference. Yeah, there it is. It's, it's I, there it is in the yeah, episode. So there's like just a running joke that I can't get through an episode <laughs> without talking about Mookie bets. It's okay. Uh, I can't go through a day without talking about Mookie bets in some better I, yeah, way. I, I, I was going to be respectful. I wasn't, I was going to try to avoid him, but um, <laughs> anyway, there it is. Everyone take your drink or whatever. We're moving on. There's Mookie. All right. So uh, with that, we're going to move on into our uh, segment, the pickle jar, uh, which is if you're a first time listener, it's where we, uh, really take time to appreciate some of baseball's super weird uh, lingo and terminology. And what we do is we take a relatively obscure baseball term. Uh, in this case, in this case, we're talking about the kitchen sink. Uh, and we take it to some of our friends that maybe are less familiar with the sport and its slang. Uh, and we ask them for what they think uh, the, the term is. So like I said before, uh, tonight we're talking about the kitchen sink. So I went and I asked my friend Riley, uh, and I asked him, I was like, Riley, what does a kitchen sink mean in the context of baseball? And he said that his first guess is that it's like a really good sinker, right? Uh, but he thought that that was a little too on the nose. But I think that that's a really smart answer. You know, if I... if I, it, Yeah, it seems like it's heavy, like a heavy pitch that would come down. So the kitchen sink is going to drop out of the sky and you can't do anything with it. It's just too heavy. It's like a bowling ball. 
Exactly, exactly. Um, and now we have uh, Brandon, who is actually going to, uh, this is cool, in real time, we're going to call up uh, Courtney uh, to give her answer. All right. <laughs> right. It's, it's like some weird radio show. <laughs> Hello. Oh. Hey, Courtney. Yes. Yeah, sorry about that. So, yeah, you're on speaker right now. So, you're right up next to the microphone. So, the the whole wonderful world can hear you. Okay. So, so first of all, would you like to say, I've talked about you a lot in this podcast. That, you know, like, the, there was a marriage that happened recently. Everyone loves you. Say hi. <laughs> hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, for this week on the Pico Draw, then, uh, the phrase that we're going to ask you what it means is the kitchen sink. Oh, the, I'm guessing that's like they throw, it, I'm guessing it's like a play where you throw everything in. It's like throw everything in the kitchen sink. Is that a thing? Yeah, throwing everything in the kitchen sink. That kind of makes a lot of sense. And yeah, yeah actually, you, you, you would be exactly right about that one. The kitchen sink is just kind of throwing everything out of hither, all the different pitches you have. So that's exactly right. Nice. Well, <laughs> I'm a mental Perfect. All right. Thank you, Courtney. All right. No problem. Bye. That's actually not a bad answer either. And and you did get at it there. Uh, Sarah, where do you think it came from? Like, what was its origin story? I and mean, okay. this could be tough because it could be anything. But where do you think kitchen sink came from? Hmm. It's unfair to throw you under the bus like this because that's a difficult question. Come on, short hop and, and tall tales and you're on the hot seat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We were just talking about 1875, so it can be anything. Yeah. Oh well, that already. My original guess was did some like broadcaster randomly like drop it one day. <laughs> that's as good a guess as any. You know, like the the old timey broadcaster <laughs> voice. Yeah, uh, I'm like that sounds like something right. they would. Spend, like, was that even a thing in like the 1800s? <laughs> Had radio been invented right, yet? Was the plumbing in the 1800s? <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what the timeline is on broadcasting. That's- that's a solid. That's a solid <laughs> guess because it actually did originate from the early 1900s, um, and mm-hmm. the first print reference can actually be found in 1918 in the Syracuse Herald. Uh, so the expression became popular during World War II, where it was said that everything but the chick- chicken, uh, everything but the chicken. kitchen, the chicken sink, uh, <laughs> everything but the kitchen sink was thrown at the enemy. So. Another variant of the phrase, everything but the kitchen stove, actually predates this, uh, and it can actually be found all the way back in 1894, uh, but the current phrase probably evolved uh, from this this earlier term. Mm-hmm. So the kitchen sink, when a pitcher throws every single one of his pitches to try to get a hitter out. And and aren't those just the worst? Like if you're if you're a fan of the pitching team, just to see the pitcher go out and throw 12, 13 pitches and do everything in their arsenal and still they're fouling it off. It's the most annoying thing to watch. I think that's probably one of my favorite parts about baseball is because that's where it really becomes, okay, you know what? I'm just going to throw you my best pitch. Yeah. When you got to give me your best shot at it. When it's your batter doing it, but when your pitcher. Yeah. 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 Pitch is going for yes, a thirty pitch yes. inning. I hate it, but I love it. Yes, As there's there's that masochism again. There you go. So speaking of kitchen sinks, there's no pitcher <laughs> with a larger repertoire uh, in MLB right now than the Padres starter Yu Darvish. So for a bit of a pickoff trivia question before we transition into our next topic, uh, Sarah and Brandon, how many pitches does Yu Darvish currently throw? 
And for extra credit, oh, how goodness. many of them can you name? Oh, God. So, goodness. When I think of pitchers that came from Japan, I'm going to think of the Gyro Ball. Remember that? When that was a big deal. And mm-hmm. when did. In like 2008, I want to say, when it came over. Uh, but that's always not you. Uh, so on that the other you. day. That's wild. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> What, what, what was your prognosis? Does it exist? Was it a myth? What do you think? I think it exists. But <laughs> it is a weird. weird. <laughs> this, it just didn't work that well after that one. No. Year. All right. You, Darvish, how many pitches? Hmm. Um, I'm not going to. I'll, I'll, I'll kind of go first so that way Sarah can think on it and get the actual right answers. Um, so I'm going to make <laughs> some pitch names up. So, of course, we have Curveball. We're going to have a reverse curveball, a four-seamer, a two-seamer, definitely a slider. Was that reverse curveball? I'm making them up. What is Uh, a reverse (laughs) curveball? Like a Uh, screwball? (laughs) So it's a curveball. Well, you know, typically you have a curveball that go like 12-6. So we think of a hands of a clock, top to bottom. But maybe reverse curveball goes 6-12. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sinker, splitter. And one more made-up pitch, so nine pitches. Okay, so you have nine. Sarah, what's your number? Yeah, I got nine. Nine. Oh, God. I was thinking like six or seven. So if you're on the higher end, I'll go seven. Okay, so you're both wrong. He throws 11 pitches, according <laughs> according to him. 11. 11. 11. And I, okay, so technically some of these are just, uh, yeah, I guess, not... There's just variations of, of of certain pitches. So according to you, Darvish, he throws a knuckle curve, a quote-unquote normal curve, a slow curve, which he can throw as slow as 62 miles an hour, which sounds more like an EFIS. Uh, he throws a four-seam fastball, a two-seam fastball, a cutter, a hard cutter, a slider, a splitter, a changeup, and a custom pitch, which he calls the Supreme, uh, which he says is a cross between his splitter and his two-seam. I... One day, desperately want a you Darvish to pitch in the Taco Bell annual All Star softball game and throw the Supreme. I feel that's the great tie in. And I feel like you Darvish is exactly the kind of person who would play an old timers game when he's like, you know, 70 and be throwing everything, you know, just the whole kitchen mm-hmm. sink, you know. Now, Brandon, we touched on this a little bit at the beginning. I'm just going to let Brandon take it over. He's talking about, I think you said Josephus the Phenomenal. Yeah, so Josephus the Phenomenal. Uh, this is one of the stories that I was looking at a whole different story to do this podcast, and I stumbled into this guy. Uh, so 2021 right now, we are on pace in the baseball season to absolutely shatter the record of no hitters in the single season. So something weirds going on, which is great. Um, so I kind of thought, you know, well, well, what's the history of no hitters? And I thought, well, maybe there's some cool stories about the progression of no hitters. Maybe there's some fun stories. And I thought, you know what? Because we are short hops and tall tails, Noah. Uh, who threw the first no hitter in baseball history? So I went back and did some did some snooping around, and I came up with a more convoluted answer than I would have thought, which leads us to Josephus the Phenomenal, who pitched in professional baseball from 1875 now, to 1876-1876. I'm assuming you're going to tell us why, <laughs> how he got the nickname the Phenomenal, right? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, it's such a great nickname. Even Josephus was an actual name. 
Uh, so his actual name was Joe Borden. As you know, plain as you can get, Joe Borden, but they came into this magnificent name somehow. Uh, he ended up throwing the very first professional no-hitter in 1875. Uh, now I'll say professional, not major league no-hitter, although he may have done that as well. We'll see later. <laughs> so in 75, this was only about five years after the fact where pitchers stopped throwing underhand because through the 60s and 50s in 1800s, p- pitchers would throw underhand and the batters could request, can you throw me a high or low ball? And they would do so. Uh, so they've just been starting throwing overhand, and he was one of the first players to really get a curveball going. So according to the newspapers, he had a wicked curve that would go you know, inside to out on the right-handed batters, and they just couldn't keep up with it. Um, so he was phenomenal in that sense, but also extremely wild. He could not throw a strike to save his life, apparently. And uh, when he first started playing, th- this was still deep in the time where ballplayers were scoundrels and scallywags and were frowned upon in general society. And so he didn't want his family knowing he played baseball. So he didn't go by Joe Borden. No, he went by Joe Josephs. Well, that's creative. And also the name Joe Neborn. Now, Joe, that, that's his last... Yes, that's his last name spelled backwards. That's not a, that's not a this name. This feels letters. <laughs> Nebord, yeah. It, this 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 feels like he went up to the umpire and goes, "Hey, Mister Umpire, I'm ready to play my game." And he goes, "What's your name, son?" Joe. Joe Josephs. Is that how they sounded? Or he thinks in, of, in 1875. Joe Joe Josephs, Mister. I'm gonna go throw a no hitter. That's exactly what he sounded like. <laughs> I do love the idea that that playing baseball that was, was considered shameful enough that he needed to use an alias, though. Well, it was actually it was like that through the tens and the twenties, right? <laughs> Wasn't it like Connie Mack who helped yeah. like revolutionize the game, make it a gentlemanly game, quote unquote gentlemanly game, whatever that means? Yeah, yeah. So it was a scallywag game. He's a, a you know a made up name to get through so his family wouldn't you know be shamed upon this. So he he comes up into the professional leagues with these made up names, and his very first two games were very bad. Um, he gave up eight runs in both <laughs> games. So 16 runs in two games, which is not good. It's not what you want. However, no, it's, 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 a, it's a bad two games there, Cotton. But on his third professional start in front of 500 fans, uh, because there was really bad weather, there was thunder and rain, and they kept it going anyway. But he tossed in that game nine innings of no-hit ball for the very first instance of professional no-hit, no-hitting baseball in history. Wow. Like in the amateurs, I'm sure it had been done before, but never in the majors. So this guy doing his third start of the season with a made-up name through the first professional no-hitter, which was great. And this kind of caught the attention of other, other ball clubs. So at the end of the season, he was given the very one of the first multi-year contracts in baseball. It was for $2,000 a year, which in 18... 18- 1876 was a lot of money, as you can imagine. <laughs> um, so, he, yeah, they, they kind of put him under a microscope, the newspapers did. And for a guy that only pitched two seasons in professional ball, there's a lot of newspaper reporting about him, probably because he was making $2,000 a year in 1875. Um, so he signed with the Boston Red Caps for the National Association League. Uh, but then the NA League transitioned to the National League in 1876. And the same National League that we know and love today. And in 
his first start, he won the very first game in National League history. So not only does he have the first no-hitter, he also has the first W in National League history uh, when he defeated the Athletics 6-5. Hooray. Um, But the Athletics also made 11 errors in that game, which probably helps. (laughs) I... I just, I just yeah. really question sometimes, like how a team could make so many errors back in, you know, before eleven you know, in the dead ball era, well, where, where the ball is just basically like tobacco juice and true, and like ten miles an hour. Yeah, it was tobacco juice and and feathers strung together, but they also didn't have gloves and and catcher's gear. I don't think okay. it was really invented until the eighteen eighties. I think eighty five is when fair, the catcher's mask was made. Whatever, <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the the catchers that you can go back and look at these. We mentioned this in the earlier podcast, but there are literally poems about these old catchers that was so I don't know handy with the hands. They didn't need masks or protection. They got angry at the new kids who all of a sudden wore a face mask. It's kind of a whole. It's like weird a poem thing. about like Brian McCann or or Yadier Molina. <laughs> back when men was were it really men, that yeah, exactly. Before. So so Joe Josephs. Joe Josephs, yeah. So he he got the first no hitter, the first National League win. Uh, two days after that first win, he gave up twenty runs to Philadelphia. Okay, all right. Two days after that, he became the first major league pitcher to be relieved from a ball game. Because hey, he gave up five runs in five innings, and the manager said, "You know, you gave up twenty runs last game, five <laughs> runs this game, you're out." Because that's when pitchers went, you know, twenty innings every day, and yeah. no one batted an eye. So first pitcher to be relieved, first pitcher to throw a no hitter. And then, um, about a month later, he threw another no-hitter. And this would be the first official no-hitter in National League history, except uh, that the official scorekeeper, uh, he went by a name of, if I can find it, Opie Kaler, like Ron Howard Opie, um, Opie Kaler. Um, He had a tendency of marking um, walks as hits and hits as walks. Because I guess in the 1876 season, anything went. Sure. And the scorekeeper was like, ah, oh, he probably got a hit. And so 75 years later, some sabermetric historians went back and thought, no, actually, he didn't. Nobody got a hit off him. This was the first no hitter in National League history. So yeah. not only did our guy Joe here get the first professional no hitter, but also the first National League no hitter. Um, but that is disputed because, you know, cool. no one could say for sure what Opie saw that day. Yeah. Yeah. So he probably got the first, he definitely got the first professional no hitter and probably the first National League no hitter. But we really can't tell for sure because Opie didn't know what to do. So he, all these no hitters, all these accolades, uh, he would be out of the professional leagues within a couple of months. Because even though he, he had wow. good moments, um, yeah, he threw 21 wild pitches on the season. Um, he had 22 errors as a pitcher, and when he played right field, his fielding average, so how often he would successfully field the ball, 46%. So if you hit a ball to him, you're more likely to get on base than not. I'm just not sure how you could have so many errors as a pitcher unless we're, we're wild pitches counted as errors or something like that. No, because he had 21 wild pitches. So those are two different stats they kept. Okay. This was granted over 218 innings, which is quite a few. But still, yeah, yeah, it's quite, that's a lot. But still, 22 errors. 
yeah, man, maybe maybe you shouldn't be there. And so because he was on this multi-year contract, the club didn't really know what to do. Uh, so they tried asking him nicely to leave. And he said no, because he's making good money. And so they shifted him out of the rotation and made him a groundskeeper for a while. Okay. <laughs> uh-huh. And and until ultimately they got a Boston got a new owner in the eighteen seventy seven oh season God. and then they bought him out. Can you imagine and the one, disrespect there to, to just say to become a groundskeeper? Right. Can you imagine if the Angels which, like if they, Which to be fair, groundskeepers do amazing work. Oh, of course. But to go from the ace and the staff to a exactly, groundskeeper because exactly. they don't know what to do with that's you. That's not to put down, you know, groundskeeping, but like the just the the evaluation of your talent. Like, could you imagine the yeah. Angels going to Albert Pujols, going like, "Yes, like we're gonna cut you, but we need somebody to to cut the infield grass." You know, like, can, oh goodness, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that that would be something to say. <laughs> yeah, and uh, so what when Joe guys? Josephs, you know, eventually did retire, the Boston Herald uh, went all outs on him. Like there are many quotes about this guy, but I just I chose the one that kind of felt right. Um, they said of Joe, he was one of the most outrageous frauds who ever saw his name in a score sheet. Oh, ouch! Brutal! Ouch! Outrageous frauds! Yikes, man! <laughs> yeah, that really hurts. Right? And he, he ended up having a really nice, productive life. He owned his own company, worked for a bank, got married and children. That's good. You know, he, he lived until basically 1930. It was a good life. But yeah, for that one season, he was, according to Boston, a baseball villain. Wow. Okay. Well, before we... I, I appreciate the, no. the segue there. But <laughs> um, up to you, yeah. Now, were you saying that he got this caught in a, in a hidden ball trick? Oh, yeah, I, I, I kind of skipped over that part. So, yeah, he is one. He's really the player with the most firsts in baseball. First no hitter, first win. Uh, he gave up the first walk off home run. And he was also the first victim of a hidden ball trick. Uh, he was leading off an inning. I think it was like the fifth <laughs> inning. And he hit the ball and he rounded first base and he lost track of the ball. And he kind of stood there for a little bit in between first and second and wandered back to first base thinking, there's no ball here. I'm going to be safe. And as he gets back, he's just kind of walking back to the base, and the first baseman tags him out because he had no idea where Oof. the ball was at. Yeah. You know, so first uh, guy to be out with a no, uh, the hidden ball trick too. I strongly identify with that. I, I feel like, like if, if that was like the play I was known for on a baseball diamond, it would be getting bamboozled like, by a oh, hidden ball trick. There was. Oh, so this reminds me, he had such this unique career. All these firsts, these no hitters, these great events. Uh, but then he was out of baseball within a year. There was another quote. I think this was in like the 30s. There's a retrospective on some pitchers. And I think it was, oh, it may have been the, the Herald, the Boston Herald as well. Uh, and they said <laughs> of his career that it went up, up like a rocket and down like a stick. <laughs> oh, poor Joe. Oh. I just don't understand what this guy did to just, you know, inspire so much, much hatred from the media. <laughs> like, I feel like you've told a story about somebody who's just seems yeah. like a very, you know, solid. That's pretty spot on for Boston media. Yeah. yeah. That's true. Oh, that's um, But I, I just scratched the surface in this guy. So um, the Sabre community, they have a whole biography on, on Joe Burden here, I would strongly just reading it because there are a couple of other stories in there that are worth checking out. Definitely. So I just kind of touched on the, the, the topics here. Yeah. Definitely. And like you said earlier, you know, painted out to be a real villain by the Boston media. Um, I'm assuming, you know, back in 18, the 1870s or whatever, not the first time or, you know, not the last. 
but we are going to move on to our final conversation tonight and that is about baseball's villains because there really can't be a, a really good and engaging story uh without you know a bad guy to really rally the troops against right uh, so we're going to talk about really the players that they, they stoke the competitive fire in others and really gives fans someone to root against <laughs> uh, and you know, really add that extra bit of spice and flair to games. So we're talking about guys like Barry Bonds, uh, you know, Jeff Kent or today, I guess. Ty got, Cobb. Yeah, Ty Cobb uh, all the way back then. Today, you got, I guess, Carlos Correa. You know, I, I bet even I bet even Bob Gibson was probably a villain back then, too. Oh, I mean, at least he was terrifying, you know, when he was up there. Throwing, <laughs> Reggie throwing Jackson. Gas. Yeah, yeah, Reggie Jackson. Speaking so, of the A's. So to really, I guess, get this conversation going, um, Sarah, was there a player growing up that really like got under your skin? Well, I have the most Boston answer of being A-Rod, obviously. <laughs> I'm shocked. And that yeah. still has yeah. not really gone away. <laughs> okay, okay. And and, and that's that's yeah, something I, that's just I, kind of persisted, right, up until today. Because he's he's not left the, yeah. the, the media. He has not redeemed himself. Okay. <laughs> No, so I I remember a Rod as as a you know a, a Mariner and the Ranger, but the lasting image in my head isn't any of the home runs or great things he did. It's him running on the first base and swatting the ball yep. out of the first baseman's glove. Yeah, that that is the <laughs> enduring <laughs> image in my mind. A Rod. Oh man, Brandon, who uh who are some of the guys that you really couldn't stand? <sighs> well, a lot like Sarah, it has to do with the teams I grew up hating because they you know were good and things like that um i think of eric gagne um eric ah. gagne if you, you have to remember gagne he was just an absolute fireball pitcher for the dodgers in the early 2000s and my goodness did he mow people down with reckless abandon it was incredible what he was able to do uh, now of course later on turns out he was able to do those things because he had a very healthy breakfast every day uh, I, I think I mentioned this in an earlier podcast. He had one of those streaks of like how many saves in the row without blowing. It was some kind of record. It was like off the top of my head. It was like sure, eighty-four saves without a blown save. And on the eighty-fifth attempt was at Bangwon Bar Park into Diamondbacks, and I saw the home run go over my head that blew the streak, and that made uh, me very happy. So yeah, Gagne. That would be your um, answer. Of course, you got yeah. Of course, you got you got your John Rockers for various reasons. And then later on, the one that got under my skin was Niger Morgan. Yeah. Now, I love players that are about themselves on the field. They know what they like. They're going to show themselves off. It's great for the game. But when you're great for the game against my team, I'm not going to like you as much. So, of course, Niger hit the walk-off against the Diamondbacks to send us home. But, yeah. So, Niger, you're on my list. I mean, I I feel like there's also a distinction to be made between players that just play the game, you know, in a very confrontational manner and players that are actually just bad people off the field. Yeah. People to get get under your skin. Yeah. And then there's other people like uh, Ryan Braun, for example. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's a good villain. Um, Yeah. I I would say like like one of the examples of somebody who I, granted, I don't know much about his personal life, but somebody when I was a kid growing up, I hated to see. Uh, Brad Hop in the batter's box. Uh, I think he was the outfielder <laughs> for the Rockies. And if you're going, who? Well, you know, that's kind of yeah. fair because he was a solid player, but he would just destroy the Dodgers whenever he came to town. And I just had this irrational 
fear like i still check my closet every night before i go to sleep for, for this like you know 46 year old man at this point um yeah so brad hop uh of course there there was you know the entire city uh or the, the entire you know houston astros organization has kind of i feel like jumped to the forefront of the villain debate even over the yankees at this point uh yeah yeah i think they solidified their mark there yeah, which is really impressive, to be honest, to, to really just because they were beloved in 2017. I remember that people were all on the Astros train. Um, and yeah, to just really turn it around is something, uh, yeah. well, not to be proud of, but it, remarkable. At least. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I also just just uh, just Madison Bumgarner. I really love uh, and I really cherish his matchups that he had with Kershaw and, you know, with with the Dodgers lineup, like because those are the rivalry matchups that really make those kinds of games special. Right. Uh, yeah, but at the do. same time, I just couldn't stand how he was the, the whole like, Oh, you know, grouchy old man, like don't bat flip in the box. Don't, don't look at me <laughs> kind of deal. Although I do yeah. appreciate how that really added to the rivalry, I guess is what I'm saying. So he would be a good villain. I think from my point of view, I get that. Um, so- you, you know, talking about Madison Bumgarner, you got to play the game the right way and play it you know, exactly how I see it. When you're in that competitive mode, it's I'm assuming it's kind of easy to fall into that. Like you think of someone like a uh, Randy Johnson, for example, yeah. he had this gruff, you know, you know, exterior, but he just he was just so competitive and he just wanted the game to be played the way he could see it. Yeah. And of course, he's lightened up later on. But yeah, it's easy to see those competitive people. He did. Yeah. yeah. He has a great uh, logo for his Very company. Cute. It's a dead bird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's easy to see competitive people as bad guys just because they're so good and they shoot your team down so often. Exactly. I, I totally get that. Pictures like that, that they're like outspoken to the point where if they're not on your team, they just kind of seem villainous to you. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, you would definitely. love them if they were on your team. Um, exactly. I think we're going to talk about this in the future podcast because we're here when, um, when Puig first came up to the league and just set the league on fire, but yeah. played the game in his own way. He made a lot of enemies in that year, mm-hmm. but he was so much fun to watch. My goodness. And, and that's, I guess what it really boils down to is there's really no wrong way to play baseball unless you're not trying, you know, your best, I guess is what you could say. But, but and, and that's what's fun is you get these personality clashes where you have Puig, who is very, uh, you know, he, he played the game with a lot of motion and really like had a bunch of fun on the field Ooh. versus Bumgarner, who looked like he would literally rather be doing anything else at the time. <laughs> um, you okay. know, you've, you've got this, you know, Kershaw is very stoic. Uh, and then Juan Soto is doing his super cool, you know, Cupid shuffle in the box and everything. Juan Soto uh, I love that Soto shuffle. Yeah. Yeah. Like, okay. 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 So- Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, like Bellinger, Yelich, uh, all, you know, Freddie Freeman. Like, I love these guys just all have a lot of fun That's when they so play. Much fun to and, watch, you know, yeah. I love how the emotions really kind of help to sow the, the seeds of rivalry when mm-hmm. they get really fired up. Like, I can get mad at them, but at the end of the day, I kind of love it. I, I guess baseball fans are just secretly masochists. Not so um, secretly, <laughs> I feel like. Okay. So, related, uh, Sarah, I'll start with you. So players that tend to do well in your home ballpark. So who has the most home runs by a visitor in Fenway Park, do you think? Oh, God. I'm going to come back to you, Noah. No, don't yeah. worry. And Fenway's been around for 100 years. So this yeah, is kind of I would difficult. Say, I feel like there's probably some like random guy back. In, like, yeah. I'll tell you this. It's not random. You will, okay. he's, he will know the name. And he plays on your 
He, yeah, he he does play on a team that you do not particularly care for. Currently, switch switch hitter, switch Mickey Mantle. Bingo! <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I ruined it. I ruined things. No, no you're you're right. Mickey Mantle has 38 home runs in Fenway. Okay. Now, uh, Noah. Okay. That- most home runs okay. in Dodger Stadium for a visitor. Now, Sarah, feel free to chime chime in here since Noah stole your thunder. <laughs> Dodger Stadium, sort of thinking post, you know, post Brooklyn era. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gonna be someone. I don't know. Uh, I'll give you one hint. NL West. Okay. Well, yeah, I figured <laughs> divisional. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a reason I said that. I'm just trying to think of who, so I don't. I don't think it's oh, somebody newer. G- give me a name. Who do you think? Just give me a name as as, as you're know, thinking. Like, maybe like Todd Helton or Luis Gonzalez. Ooh, I wish it was Gonzo. Um, it is, in fact, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds. Up. Uh, see, twenty nine home runs. <laughs> I'm shocked. Now, f- since I'm kind of, you know, giving us all a hard time here for Chase Field, Bangkok Bar Park, the all-time home run leader by a visitor is Adrian Gonzalez. Can I check really? out? Yeah, 20 Padres run home Dodgers. runs. Yeah, no, he he uh, he hurt us pretty bad as a Padre and a Dodger. So, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, with that, we are running up a little bit on our time here. So that's going to do it. Uh, for short hops and tall tales tonight, uh, Sarah. Thanks again for joining us tonight. It was super fun uh, having you come on and getting to really talk. You know, just the fun parts of baseball. Yeah, thanks for having me. I had a great time. Yeah, of course. Um, Good. So once again, uh, be sure to follow Sarah on Twitter at skg underscore eighteen and uh, check out her across the seams articles. Uh, you'll learn a lot. She's super knowledgeable. Um, now, if you want to follow Short Hops and Tall Tales on Twitter, our shameless plug is at Short Hops PL. Uh, we're going to plug Brandon. You can follow him at BD Riddle, myself at Noah A. Scott 6. Uh, and if you like what you're hearing, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're currently listening to this podcast right now. Uh, maybe leave a review if you like. Um, so for Brandon Riddle, I'm Noah Scott, and this has been the Short Hops and Tall Tales pod- podcast. See you next time. <laughs>